In our 9 o'clock Bible study on Sunday mornings, we're discussing the future Antichrist and his global reign of terror. Uh, you know, world empires and, and world leaders through the years are, are really nothing new. And in, in the book of Hebrews, the writer in chapter 2, in the passage we get to this morning, basically encourages these first century Jewish Christians to recognize the fact that even though they were facing unspeakable tyranny at the hands of the Roman Emperor Nero, that this was nothing new. And it was certainly no reason to abandon their faith or uh, turn their backs on Christianity and other Christians. Uh, they needed to stand firm. They needed to hang on uh, to the faith. And yet they were so consumed by their narrow-minded, myopic approach uh, to their circumstance, they kind of lost sight of both past history and what lies ahead. You know, this tendency to see life through the lens of uh, current reality is very common. Uh, certainly true when it comes to the United States and, and this perspective known as American exceptionalism. Uh, we tend to think that all of the world, and, and in many ways our view of Scripture even, revolves around America, or at least a Western mindset. Uh, so I did some calculating. You know, assuming a young earth, I believe the, the, the Bible is, uh, is only 6,000, uh, or the humanity is only 6,000 years old. The Bible is to be taken literally and speaks of God speaking the world into existence. We didn't evolve over millions of years from a wet rock. Our, you know, we're not, our ancestors are not monkeys. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. And uh, so if you assume uh, that that's correct, which I do because the Bible teaches that, then let's just say the earth is about 6,000 years old. Humanity, human history, is about 6,000 years old. We'll just pick that round figure. Well, if that's true, then 96% of human history does not include the United States. You know, we've only been around 244 some odd years. So the idea here is that nation states and world empires ebb and flow, rise and fall over time. So let's put ourselves in the perspective of this first century Jewish audience, the, the Jewish believers who had gotten saved, converted to Christianity, and were now facing difficult times and were considering sort of reverting back to Judaism and abandoning uh, Christianity. From their perspective, they should have known that, for example, there were other empires in the not-too-distant past. Some 500 years earlier, you had, you know, five to 600 years earlier, you had the, the Babylonian Empire. And uh, the red dot there represents Israel or Jerusalem, which is the general area that the audience to whom the writer of Hebrews is addressing this letter lived. And, uh, and they knew that in times past, an evil dictator, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, had tried to take over uh, the world. And you see in the green there on the screen how far uh, that Babylonian empire had expanded. Now, even before him, uh, some 1,800 years before Christ, another Babylonian, Hammurabi, had tried to take over the world as well. But then after uh, Nebuchadnezzar, you've got the Persians, some four to 500 years before Christ. And everything in pink there represents the Persian Empire. Again, the Hebrews, uh, the Hebrew Christians that are the subject of our study, uh, were right there in the general area of that uh, red dot. Uh, but it was an even larger empire with uh, world leaders like Cyrus the Great and uh, Darius the Great. And speaking of world leaders named the Great, what about Alexander the Great, the Greek Empire, some you know, two to three hundred years before Christ? So again, getting closer in time uh, to the first century. Again, here's Israel or Jerusalem, and you had Alexander the Great trying to expand the empire of Greece and take over the world. 
And then you come to the first century, which is contextually where we are in our study. And of course, this is the Roman Empire. Uh, and at its height, it represented every territory in red there on the screen. Over here would be uh, Jerusalem and Israel and that general area. So you had leaders like uh, Caesar Augustus, who was the Roman emperor at the time Christ was born. And you had uh, Caligula, a Roman emperor who was there in the early days of the church and at the time when the Apostle Paul, for example, uh, got saved and as he was preparing for his missionary journeys that would begin uh, later on during the reign of Claudius. But at the time uh, that these Jewish believers were living, that we're studying, Nero was the Roman emperor. Nero. So I want you to remember this guy. He's the world leader that was giving these Hebrew Christians so many problems, and he was ruthless. He was burning Christians at the stake. It was near the end of his life. The closer he got to the end of his life, the more crazy he became and was doing just some insane things. Uh, but I'm calling this study the future world leader, this message this morning. Through the centuries, there's been no shortage of world leaders seeking to dominate the earth by expanding their kingdoms. And the writer of Hebrews today addresses this and reminds them that A, this is nothing new, and B, they could look forward to a future world leader who would make all things right. What about us today? Well, as we look back through the annals of history, we find leaders a thousand years ago or so, 800 years ago, like the leader of the Mongol Empire, Genghis Khan, who tried to take over the world. Or what about Henry VIII uh, in the early 16th century? put 70,000 people to death in an effort to expand his kingdom, including two of his own wives. Uh, Ivan the Terrible, the Tsar of Russia from 1533 to 1584, doubled the territory of Russia. And he would impale his victims, he would burn them at the stake the way Nero had centuries earlier, and he would boil some victims to death. Uh, during the French Revolution, uh, Maximilian Robespierre led a reign of terror in the 18th century, killed some 40,000 people. He established the Committee of Public Safety as a pretext for control. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it, if we look at what's happening around us today. Uh, in our own uh, generation, we had Joseph Stalin, the leader of the Soviet Union, created the Gulag system, and the conventional wisdom is that he killed 20 million people, but a lot of studies have been done, including one by R.J. Rummel, in which he demonstrates quite convincingly that it was really more like 43 million that were killed under Stalin's regime. You know, Hitler gets a lot of uh, airtime, but Stalin was a much more ruthless dictator trying to take over the world than Hitler was. And speaking of Hitler, of course, uh, we know him in our own day. World War II, the Fuhrer set up the Gestapo, secret police state and concentration camps, killed 11 million people, including 6 million Jews. In more recent times, maybe you're not familiar with the story of Augusto Pinochet. I talk about him in my book, The Great Last Day's Deception, and uh, I give a little bit more of the backstory to him in Chapter 3 as an opening illustration for that chapter in that book. But after a coup d'etat put him in power in 1973, he was responsible for mass arrests, systematic torture. He's the one that coined the phrase disappearances, or it was coined in the context of his regime. So now we talk about people disappearing, or the disappearances, or I'll disappear you. That just means kill in that, in that you know, culture and context. Killed 10,000 people. Also in the 70s, Pol Pot tried to 
rule from Cambodia by force and tyranny. Killed three million of his own people. I mean, who can imagine the killing fields? Uh, just an un, uh, unspeakable terror. Killed a quarter of his country's population. In more recent years, Kim Jong-il, who was succeeded by his son, son Kim Jong-un, uh, was called the dear leader. And Kim Jong-il uh, tried to dominate the world in his little corner of the world through nuclear weapons and things like that. Many believe that's still continuing. So the point is governments and world leaders have, 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 have killed over 262 million people in the last century alone. Democide is nothing new. And tyranny is nothing new. And the writer of Hebrews wanted his readers to understand this point. There had been plenty of tyrannical persecution prior to the time of the first century and Nero. And there has been plenty of persecution since. Persecution is no reason to turn away from Christ. Persecution is no reason to turn away from Christ. So if you come to Hebrews chapter 2, uh, the writer invites his readers and us to look forward. A better day is coming. The, the Jesus who shed his own blood to rescue us from the penalty of sin will also come back and rule over a future earthly kingdom that will be unprecedented in its righteousness and fairness and glory and peace. See, God has a plan. Don't abandon your faith in the one who will make all things new someday. A better day is coming. Don't forfeit the blessings and rewards uh, that you'll have in the kingdom someday. Stick with Jesus. As we continue our sermon series through the book of Hebrews, we're calling this unshakable faith, trusting God and trying times, we notice that throughout the book, the writer uses a combination of, of theological argumentation, encouragement, warnings, and such to motivate his original audience, and us by extension, to hold fast to their faith. In chapter 1, he made a positive argument by reminding his readers, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, that Jesus is the best. He's superior to anything else, to angels, to Judaistic systems. Why would you want to forsake Jesus if he's the best? And then in chapter 2, the first part that we looked at last week, we saw a negative warning, one of those warning passages in Hebrews in which the writer challenged us not to forsake the Jesus Christ who gives us so great salvation. And then today we come to a very key passage in Hebrews and one of my favorite passages in this epistle, and that's chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, in which the writer tells us that Jesus Christ is the future world leader. And he will consummate the kingdom someday. So why would you want to abandon him? He, he sets before us in this short, these short five verses a reason for our hope, a reason to hang on to our faith, a reason to stick with Jesus. And everybody could use hope, right? And we become so consumed with the here and the now that we forget we have the ultimate reason to hope. The writer talks about a new world to come that will make this present world with all of its suffering and evil pale in comparison. So in this context, I, I want us to take a look at three aspects of this new world that the writer alludes to. First of all, I want you to notice the new world horizon. The new world horizon. Uh, the new world that the Bible speaks of, according to the writer, is yet future. It is not here yet. Life is not about the here and the now. It's about the then and the there. So here they were living in the 67 to 69 A.D. time frame. They were facing incredible persecution. 
and yet he tells them to set their minds on the future. Listen to what he says. For he, that's God, has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. The world to come. If you have a, a paper Bible that you're following along with, I want you to underline that phrase, because that is a key phrase in Hebrews. And the reason this is my favorite passage in Hebrews is because it sets the stage for the entire rest of the book. People miss this point. They skim right over it. And so later on, when he's talking about reigning with Christ in the kingdom or implementing the new covenant and all of its blessings and things, he's talking about the future kingdom. Not now. Not now. Just three years or so before Hebrews was written, Peter pointed his readers to this new world that's on the horizon. He said, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, there's, there's nothing righteous about the world today. I mean, believers, we are positionally righteous in Christ because of our faith, but in terms of practical behavior and what we see going on around us, this is a very unrighteous age. And we long for that righteousness. And Peter, like the writer of Hebrews, says, it's coming, it's yet future, it is yet on the horizon, the new world horizon. Isaiah describes the first thousand years of this new world that is on the horizon. He says, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Just get that word picture there. There is coming a day when Christ takes the throne that a little child could lead a ferocious grizzly bear or lion, or mountain lion. Imagine that, a, a child playing with a mountain lion. We know a thing or two about mountain lions here in Colorado, and black bears, you know, black bears generally are harmless, but, you know, you come upon one with, with her cubs, or you surprise one, or antagonize them, but they can be a little testy. And he's describing a time when none of that will matter. None of that will matter. I want you to listen to the rest of the context here in Isaiah uh, chapter 11. Listen to the way he uh, describes it. The cow and the bear shall graze. See, you know, cattle ranchers today, they are worried about predatory animals like coyotes and wolves. Not anymore. Not in the kingdom they won't have to be. Their young ones shall lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. Listen to this. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. <laughs> and the weaned child, young child, shall put his hand in the viper's den. And they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the whole earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Now just think about that for a second. Let's put this in contemporary terms. Let's say a young couple with a six-month-old baby. Let's say the wife is outside in the front yard uh, getting some fresh air and hanging out. Or maybe just coming back from a walk and the husband's inside. And the husband hollers out to the wife, hey, honey, come here for a sec. And so the wife would say something like, okay, sure, just a second, honey. I'm going to lay our little infant child here right by this cobra den of, you know, pythons and venomous, terrible, dangerous snakes. Lay her, lay her right here, and I'll be in in just a moment. I mean, can you imagine such a thing? Can you imagine it? Paul put it this way in Romans 11 about the new world on the horizon. He said, creation itself will be, notice the future tense, delivered from the bondage of corruption and the glorious liberty of the children of God. He said, the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Now, when will this happen? When will this happen? 
Uh, I sent out a devotional earlier this week, and if you're watching this on video, you can go to the Not By Works website and click on the blog right there on the home page, and you can actually subscribe for an RSS feed to be alerted anytime there's a new blog, which I do weekly. But the one this week was called Seasons Come and Seasons Go. And it came to my mind as I was preparing this message, and that's why I wrote the blog about it, uh, because in Ezekiel 34, the focal passage for that article, Ezekiel talks about when the new world is going to come. And he describes it this way, I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. Notice, I will cause showers to come down in their season. There shall be showers of blessing. The answer to the question, when will this new world crest to the horizon and actually be inaugurated, when will the sun rise, if you will, on the new world, is in its season. See, according to God, God has a timetable. Seasons come and seasons go. We don't know the timetable of God. In fact, uh, the Bible tells us this exactly in Acts chapter 1. Jesus himself said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. The word times there is the Greek word chronos, meaning length of time. From the time he said that on the Mount of Ascension before he ascended to the right hand of God in heaven, which as you recall early, earlier in this series, I called that the throne in waiting. He's waiting to come back and take the throne. Take take authority over the earth and rule the world with a rod of iron. From the time he said that until today, it's been some 2,000 years. And we don't know how long it's going to be. It's, he said it's not for you to know the times, the length, or the seasons. Same, were, same idea as Ezekiel. Obviously, Ezekiel uh, was writing in Aramaic and Hebrew, but this is a different Greek language, but same idea. He references the English concept of seasons. The word seasons here in Greek is the word kairos. It means the exact date. So just as there are four distinct seasons each year, summer, winter, or summer, fall, winter, spring, now we don't know in which of those seasons Christ will come back and usher in the kingdom. It's not for us to know the times of the season. Paul put it this way, the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Notice he says this is concerning the times and the seasons, the same idea. So we don't know. We don't have the answer to that question. But it's a promise of God, and you can count on it that the new world is on the horizon. And make no mistake, when it comes, Jesus Christ will rule not just over a portion of the globe, the way some of these other world dictators have expanded their empire, but none of them, none of them comes even close to taking over the whole world and ruling in perfect peace and righteousness the way Jesus did. When He comes, it will be a global empire. A global empire. So as Jesus Himself said, therefore, be ready. For the Son of Man comes at an hour you do not expect. This is talking about the second coming, but it applies to those of us that are looking forward to the rapture when we will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air uh, as well. We just don't know when God's end times program is going to kick off and, and leading up to this new world order that's on the horizon. And so the first thing he wants us to see there in verse 5 is that the new world is on the horizon, a new world horizon. But he goes on to talk again about Jesus Christ as the leader of this new world. So we see a new world leader in verses 6 through 8. Notice what he says. One testified in a certain place, saying... Now, who is that? Well, he's referring here to David, who in Psalm 8 is the writer. And, uh, and David is speaking here in a messianic prophecy. In the original context of Psalm 8, David is talking about mankind in general... But the, the term Son of Man is a Messianic title, and Jesus Christ is the ultimate God-man. And so 
there's a sense in which mankind, these things apply to him, but then ultimately Jesus Christ, as the perfect man, fulfills them all. So notice what he says. This is the writer of Hebrews quoting David. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? Again, a reference to Christ, ultimately. He goes on. This is still from Psalm 8. He's still quoting. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You know, as a man, Jesus was temporarily lower, temporarily lower than the angels. He put on his humanity, and, and but his crowning took place at his ascension when he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And he received at that time a crown of glory and honor and authority over all creation. But when will all the world bow to that authority? I mean, he's been put over the works of your hands. And by the way, that applied to mankind too. If you go back to Genesis, mankind is the highest pinnacle of creation and we too are to have dominion over the earth. But ultimately, Christ as the ultimate God-man is the one that will fulfill that role perfectly. The time when all things now under his authority, they're already under his authority. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. He's, he's in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. The, but the time when all of these things that are now under his authority will bow to that authority awaits his return to earth at the second coming. See, the writer ends his quotation of Psalm 8 by pointing out that one day, not only angels, like he talked about in verse 5, but all things will bow to him. He said, you have put all things in subjection under him. All things. The writer points out that the one whom his readers were considering abandoning in the face of unspeakable pressure and uh, difficulty is none other than the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the one to whom all things are subject. That's where the writer leaves off with his quotation of Psalm 8, but I, I want to go on and pick it up from there. He goes on to say, David, this is David in Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies. Watch this, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. See, we, we read a passage earlier in our a service from Revelation 19, uh, talking about the return of Christ and how a sword is going to proceed out of his mouth, and with it he would strike the nations. See, all these other kingdom rulers uh, have, and world leaders have sought to overcome the world, and none of them have succeeded. But when Jesus comes back, it's going to be with a word, like, like, like just flicking away a gnat, and he'll have the entire world under his control. The writer David goes on to say, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? He says, uh, after he, right after this verse you see on the screen there, in, in Psalm 8, the writer goes on to David goes on to say, You have put all things under his feet, including all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. See, when Christ comes back, he's going to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but he's going to function in that role, the new world leader. So we see a new world on the horizon, and the writer says, you know, he's, we look forward to that time. 
And it's going to be led by none other than Jesus Christ himself, the same Jesus who saved you, the same Jesus that saved you. And then finally we see a new world order, a new world order. Notice how the writer explains what he meant when he said all things are in subjection under the feet of Christ. The rest of verse 8 here goes like this. The writer of Hebrews says, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. In other words, all means all. He wants to make it clear. This will be a global kingdom of peace and righteousness. All will be in subjection to him. But then notice, very key, very key, kind of similar to the verse 5 that we started with, uh, when he says, talking about the world to come, he says, but now, right now, we don't yet see all things put under him. You know, that was self-evident to the first century Jewish Christians who were facing persecution under Nero. It was self-evident because all things were not in subjection to Christ's authority from a practical perspective. There were renegades. There were those following the prince of the power of the air and the god of this age, Satan. It's self-evident that not everything is put under his feet yet. It will be, but it's not yet. And this should be self-evident to us too. You know, anyone who suggests that we're living in the kingdom or somehow that the church has replaced Israel and God's plan of the ages and the kingdom is right now is simply not living in reality. I mean, as we've been discussing in my 9 o'clock Sunday series on Spirit of the Antichrist, this world is under the sway of the wicked one right now. The devil is largely in control. But it will not always be that way. It will not always be an inequitable, unfair, depraved world. And that's the writer's whole point in this section. Stick with Jesus because he's the future world leader who will throw off the shackles of Rome. And it's interesting because literally they're under Roman rule in the first century when this was written. But ultimately, when Christ comes back, he's going to throw off the shackles of literal Rome too, rebuilt Rome in the Roman Empire that Daniel talks about, the revived Roman Empire. So the writer's whole point is that the future world leader is Christ. And he's motivating them not to abandon their association with Christ because to do so is to abandon the future world leader who will rule in perfect peace and justice. He goes on to explain in verse 9 that God has a plan. Notice, we do not yet see all things put under him, but, boy, that's a strong contrastive there, but what do we see? We see Jesus. We, we see Jesus. We've already seen him. He, he had a first advent, and he's going to have a second advent. And, and, and what we see now shows us that God has a plan in the works. The writer of Hebrews wanted his readers and us to know that whatever we face, it pales in comparison with this Jesus. This Jesus suffered death and was crowned with glory and honor so that he could defeat death, hell, and the grave and purchase salvation for us. Notice he goes on to say that he might taste death for everyone. You know, if you think about your life story, and each and every one of us has a life story, all the various chapters and seasons of life, like I talked about in my devotional this week, you have to realize that, that life has joy and heartache. It has victory and defeat. It's a fundamental principle. Every life does. And as we walk through Hebrews together, what we'll see is that the writer wants us to remember that nothing we have ever faced and nothing we will ever face can compare to the agony our Savior suffered nearly 2,000 years ago 
He's been there. And he can relate. See, the cross had to come before the crown. Humility comes before honor. Tragedy before triumph. Sacrifice comes before celebration. The atonement came before attainment. Suffering before success. Uh, I could go on. I have a great thesaurus. But this is a life principle. Humility before honor. Jesus Christ faced it. And next week in the section we're going to look at in Hebrews 2, the very next section we're going to see how Jesus, as the ultimate God-man, really has been through everything we've been through. So the writer's just sort of setting the stage for that argument that he's going to make. But right now he wants them to see that just as they're facing hardship and heartache and humility, and they need to look forward to the victory someday in the kingdom, Jesus Christ was there too. The very one who was who will be crowned as king and when he takes the throne in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem during the kingdom was first crowned with thorns. Humility comes before honor. You want order? You, 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 know, you want real order? Well, that's not going to happen until the king of kings comes back and takes the throne. You know, We talked about the rod of iron that he's going to rule with. Uh, we read about that earlier. That's a Hebrew metaphor that, that just talks about ruling with perfect order, perfect peace and righteousness and justice. You know, if you want a word picture, you can picture if you're trying to, you know, ward off someone with a, like a, a, a wet spaghetti noodle as your rod. Well, that's not going to do much. It, it, actually, your rod's going to bend it to the whims of the person that you're trying to dictate. But you take an iron rod, it gets your attention. And he's going to rule with a iron rod in perfect order. Again, back to Revelation chapter 19. This new world order is described when it comes. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And the new world order will come. First at the hands of the Luciferians and the Antichrist, but ultimately under the feet of Jesus. And when it comes, oh, that will be glory for you and for me and for the whole world. But you need to make sure that you're going to be a part of that new world order. Uh, the only way that you'll be a part of this world to come that the writer talks about at the beginning of this section, Hebrews 2, 5, where we started, is if you've trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. See, everyone is born a sinner in separation from God. And there's no hope. We have no way of getting enough righteousness or being good enough or trying hard enough to bridge that gap. The only way to bridge that gap is through the shed blood of God's Son. He gave us His Son as the perfect gift, came to earth, born of a virgin, lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, died on a cross paying your penalty and my penalty, rose again, defeating death and hell and the grave. Our, the wrath of God is fully satisfied. The payment has fully been made, and all we have to do is receive it, and we do that by faith, simply by trusting in Jesus Christ as the only one who can forgive sin and give you the gift of eternal life. Have you done that? If you have, then you can rest assured you're going to be part of this coming kingdom, this new world order. You know, the Satanists like to talk a lot about the new world order, and many world leaders, and we're going to talk about these in my 9 o'clock series in the weeks to come, make reference to the New World Order. But they don't know what they're talking about. Because the New World Order that they're talking about 
is not going to be a world of order. It's going to be a world of chaos. Christ, on the other hand, will be the new world leader of the new world order. So what did we see uh, today? The new world is on the horizon. This world to come of which we speak. That's what the writer's talking about in Hebrews. And it's going to be led by a new world leader named Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for your sins. And when He comes, it will be a new world order like never before, a time of unprecedented peace and righteousness and justice. So what's the takeaway from this passage? Well, really, the, the takeaway takeaways in this series through Hebrews are going to all be very similar because there's a running theme through the book of Hebrews. It's coming at it from different angles, making different arguments, but the gist of it this week, as in many other weeks, is don't be discouraged. Why don't we be discouraged? Why shouldn't we be discouraged? Because a better day is coming. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you that a better day is coming, and I thank you that Lord, even in the midst of all of this chaos and uncertainty that we're facing in our day, uh, Lord, first of all, recognizing it's nothing new. Many people have faced far worse through the last 2,000 years of church history. But Lord, in the midst of this fog, we can see a clear light, a beacon of hope uh, when we recognize that the promises of your word are true and that a better day is coming. And so, Lord, today we pray that we would keep our eyes on your Son and our Savior, fix our eyes upon Him, look forward to that new world to come, and allow it to motivate us to stick close uh, to your Son. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.